2: I guess this shouldn't come as a surprise at this stage, but a bearded man in a turban was attacked by two men yelling, go back to your country. Happened in California last week, and the attack, which police are investigating as a hate crime, appears to have been politically motivated. The victim, Sergeant Molly, is a member of the Sikh community and was putting up campaign signs in his community when he was assaulted. Sikh men wear turbans. Here's the plot twist, though. Molly was putting up campaign signs in support of Republican candidates and one Republican congressman, Jeff Denham, a big supporter of ICE, who votes with Trump 97.8 percent of the time, putting up campaign signs for Denham at the time of the attack. Over to you, CBS Sacramento. Molly has been active in the community for years, well known, raising thousands for homeless and fire victims, hauling supplies through his trucking company, A strong supporter of the Republican Party, the campaign signs that night for Congressman Jeff Denham and other members of the Stanislaus County GOP. I'm American, 100 percent, no doubt. As for his attackers that night. If you're
3: real
4: American, you love America, you should not do that. That is not American way.
2: Molly is an American, an American citizen, a naturalized American citizen with brown skin and an accent. And he represents for many, on the right, the demographic changes that our country has undergone over the last few decades that has Laura Ingraham and the rest of the white nationalists at Fox News so concerned. Says he's American. I'm with you. You are an American, also a Republican. And I'm just curious if Mr. Molly is paying attention to what the Trump administration is up to, the way they're targeting other brown people in this country to please Laura Ingraham and the rest of the white nationalists at Fox news and the white nationalists and white supremacists who work in the oval office. I've been keeping a running list in November of 2017, the Trump administration kicked 59,000 displaced Haitian earthquake victims out of the country. Also in November of 2017, Trump administration ends protections for thousands of Nicaraguan immigrants. January of this year, Trump orders 200,000 Salvadorans to leave the United States. March of this year, Trump gives Liberian immigrants one year to leave the United States or face deportation. April of 2018, Trump administration moves to deport thousands of Nepalis in the United States on temporary residency permits. Also in April, more migrants may face deportation as Trump weighs ending temporary protections for Hondurans. I don't know. Seems to me that there's a pattern of racial animus at work there. Maybe an effort? not even an effort they're trying to conceal to de-brown this country. On top of all of these other attacks on specific groups of brown people who happen to be in this country, we have the Trump administration's attacks on DREAMers, DACA recipients. We have efforts to limit and roll back legal immigration. And now we have a denaturalization task force that's going to strip American citizens American citizens, 100%, no doubt American citizens, of their citizenship and throw them out of the country. So what's the goal here? The targeting of Salvadorians and Nicaraguans and Haitians and Dreamers and Liberians. It's not about making America greater or safer. Immigrants are less likely to commit violent crime or richer. Immigrants enrich this country. It's about making America whiter. Donald Trump, Stephen Miller, John Kelly, Paul Ryan, and Mitch McConnell all hope to make America as white as possible for as long as possible. This is a campaign being waged by the White House to de-brown this country by throwing people like Mr. Molly out of it. Irving Kristol famously and fatuously described a conservative as a liberal who has been mugged by reality. You would think our new reality, the racist rhetoric and racist policies of our racist president and the racist hatred unleashed by our racist president's racist rhetoric and racist policies would have figuratively mugged Mr. Molly a long time ago, maybe before a pair of violent racist assholes who are without a doubt supporters of Donald Trump and his racist policies got around to literally jumping him. The fact that Molly was still a Republican 19 months into Trump's first and please God only term makes the next plot twist in this story not nearly so shocking. He says he won't let the beating get him down, CBS Sacramento reports, and he will continue to place campaign signs and support the GOP. All right, coming up on today's show, Erica Mowen from Ojoy oh Sex Toy joins us to give us a sex toy recommendation and review, plus tons of your questions and lots of my answers.
5: Hi, Dan. I'm a 28 year old cisgender female living on the east side of the country. I recently got back from a road trip where I binged on your past four or five episodes. And one that sticks with me is the woman who said she was sexually assaulted. Um, after receiving a text message, and you kind of define the situation for her. And I was wondering if I could get help with that, um, get your insight and definition of a situation that had happened with me. Um, This is about 10 years ago, and the reason that I would like, I guess, more insight now is because I'm thinking about confronting this individual. Um, When I was 18, I had a situation with my brother's friend where I was drunk and um, went to bed in one bedroom. When I woke up, I was in the friend's bedroom, completely naked, and he was already touching, fondling me, penetrating me with his fingers. At that point, I kind of came to, and he had asked if it was okay. And I don't remember the exact wording that I said, but I said something along the lines of either yes, sure, okay, okay really not having any idea what was going on. This friend was about 30 years old um, and had also, he's been very close with my family, um, with my brothers and other friends of ours. Um, He proceeded to have sex with me. I cried very openly, just crying the entire time until he finished. I got dressed and left. The next day he gave me a high five. It took me a long time to really understand what happened with the situation. I was in denial for very many years. With the Me Too campaign and movement coming out, and I've read other people's stories, I've really started to validate the situation. And I'm wondering if this was sexual assault or, or rape, even though I did say okay, my body language, and the fact that I had just graduated high school, I was really drunk, makes me feel like I've always felt like it was a violation. But when I'm I'm thinking about confronting this person now in terms of just telling him to leave me alone, I see him at a lot of um, weddings, different events between workplaces, and I really just hate being around him. And he'll come up, he'll try to hug me, he'll try to, you know, high-five me, and it just makes me want to burn my skin off. I just, I hate being around him. So I'm wanting to confront him, I'm wanting to tell him, Leave me the fuck alone. But I feel like I need a valid reason to tell him that and to be like, this is what you did to me. This is not okay. And this is why this isn't okay.
2: You have a perfectly valid reason to tell this piece of shit to go fuck himself. He raped you when you were 18 years old. He came into whatever room that you'd retired to when you were drunk to go to sleep, undressed you, took you to another room, penetrated you. Digitally, with his fingers, that is sexual assault. That is rape. And then when you came to, he asked if this was okay. And you, in a state where you couldn't give him your meaningful consent, you, in a state where you may have felt threatened or coerced, but setting that aside, you were just too fucking drunk for this to be going on. And he goddamn knew it. He fucked you while you cried the whole time until he finished. What kind of monster fucks someone while they weep? A rapist kind of monster, that's what kind of monster does that. The rapist brand version of monster does that. To a drunk 18-year-old girl who'd been passed out in another room who's 12 years younger than he is, a piece of shit rapist does that. There's no need to parse anything here. This is a straight up, rape and you have every right to blow the fuck up at him. You have every right to tell everyone in your life what the fuck happened. If it makes you feel better, it's probably outside the statute of limitations now, but you can file a fucking police report. You never know when that's going to connect a bunch of dots and result in someone being brought to justice. And you don't have to high five this piece of shit anymore. You don't have to look at him anymore. You have a right to say to your family, to your brother, that you will not be in the same room with the person who raped you when you were 18 period, the end. And if he's there, you're not. And you are asking them, you are insisting that they choose you, the violated. And you are asking, no, not asking you are insisting. You are demanding that your family prioritize your emotional safety over the feelings of this toxic piece of shit who, while he's still at family events has access to other young vulnerable female members of your family and that you cannot stand for and that they should not stand for period the end i'm so sorry this happened to you go tell this motherfucker to get the hell out of your life and the hell away from your family
6: hi dan and the tech savvy at risk youth i am a. 26 year old cisgender female from Canada and I'm calling with a bachelorette party etiquette question. So I'm going to a bachelorette party next week or next month and one of the Jess activities is going to a drag show and I know you've talked on the show before about how it's kind of tacky to celebrate straight marriage in the face of people that haven't always had access to the same rights. My question is, is going to a sit-down show different than going and dancing at a club? And also, is it different in celebrating that in Canada, where gay marriage has been legal since 2003? Also, I'm not sure how to navigate trying to steer the planning committee towards a different activity, because I don't want to come off confrontational, but I find the suggested activity kind of tacky.
2: Back before same-sex couples could legally marry, a whole bunch of gay bars uh, led by Sidetrack in Chicago, they went first, banned bachelorette parties because you have these crowds of straight girls woohooing hooing their way into gay bars celebrating their impending weddings. This right that all the other homos in the bar that night were denied. But now with marriage equality having been achieved in Canada and the United States, fingers crossed that that achievement isn't rolled back by all of Donald Trump's appointments to the Supreme Court. People object a bit less to bridal parties showing up and getting obnoxious. In gay bars, Sidetrack rescinded their ban after the Obergefell ruling came down in 2015. That said, there are still people who are annoyed by bachelorette parties at drag shows and in gay bars. But bitching about the bachelorette parties at the drag show has become an integral part of the enjoyment of the drag show for a lot of people at the drag show. There's a bar in Seattle that has nothing but drag shows and they sell bridal party packages. So they're welcoming bridal parties to the event and selling these packages. So obviously bridal parties are welcome at this particular drag show. You might want to inquire if you're concerned about the feelings of the drag performers in the bar that you're planning to take this bachelorette party to as to whether you guys would be welcome that would be above and beyond the call of duty consideration for the marginalized peoples that you will be celebrating your wedding in front of. And you probably will be welcome, so long as you remember to tip, and so long as you guys aren't messy drunk when you arrive. Save the drinking for when you're out. Don't get messy drunk and then go out. Pro tip. Final tip, though. My objection to bachelorette parties and bachelor parties isn't about where they happen. I don't give a shit where they happen. I am opposed to them happening at all, because what they symbolize, and we've talked about this before on the podcast, they reinforce what I think is a really dangerous notion. They reinforce this idea that undermines marriage, which is when you get married, the fun stops. When you get married, no more party. When you get married, no more hanging out with friends solo on your own and tearing up the town. That marriage is the end of fun and adventure and possibility and nightlife and getting drunk with your buddies. And I think that's bad for marriage. And not everybody who has a bachelor or bachelorette party puts stock in that or believes that, but a lot of people do. And a lot of people have bachelor bachelorette parties to mark the end of their single life, the end of fun. I was just in Vienna. This plague of bachelor bachelorette parties has spread to Europe, and there, were, uh, there was a bachelor party coming down the street And the guy, the groom, you could tell who the groom was because all of his friends were dressed as prison guards and he was in a prison uniform and chains. I wouldn't marry that guy if he thought getting married to me was going to prison unless we were going to a fetish prison and just for a weekend. I wouldn't marry that guy if he regarded me as prison, as jail, as incarceration. That was his idea and his friend's ideas of what marriage is. I'm not entering into a marriage with that guy. So I think you should have a conversation with your friends not about where the bachelorette party is going but why they're having a bachelorette party at all. And if your friend, the the, the bride, the woman who's getting married, believes that marriage is the end of fun, not just that marriage is an opportunity to have this kind of ritualized fun and she will continue to have fun after she's married, you need to have a conversation with her about that because successful marriages, long, long, long long-ass term relationships – those two people are having fun together, having adventures together. Their wedding wasn't the end of possibility and the end of adventure. It was the beginning of a new kind.
1: Hey, Dan, Nancy, and sex like Savvy at Risk Rescue, 30-something male on the East Coast with a bisexual female partner. Wait, 20. We had a very special guest star over last night. It was our first time with uh, this girl coming over. She told us that she had a UTI, so penetrator sex was off the table, that uh, was fine. So we ended up just going down on each other. While I was going down on uh, her, the uh, guest star, I noticed uh, some funkiness, but I was just jocking it up to the UTI. I don't think I've actually gone down on a girl with UTI before, so... You know, didn't really know what to expect. Anyway, um, all of us uh, finish that, and then we're cuddling afterwards and ask her if she has any kinks. She uh, is reluctant to tell us, but uh, she says that she does like to, to pee on people. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's okay. It's not for us, but, you know, more power to you with that. I'm sure you'll find somebody that's into that out there. Um we tell her she can stay the night, but she opts to to leave, so she goes home. Uh, we turn the lights on and then uh, realize that she has actually peed everywhere. So while I was going town on her, that weirdness was her just, emptying her bladder, Uh, and she peed through uh, all of our sheets, through our comforter, through the mattress protector, uh, into the mattress, uh, and it is just awful. It smells like the worst, the worst pee. So, um, trying to figure out what to do now, is it conceivable that... She didn't know that she was peeing and it was the UTI's fault, uh, or maybe the UTI is a cover story. I don't know. I kind of doubt it. I think she just wanted to pee on me.
2: First thing you got to do is wash your sheets, flip your mattress over, and take your comforter to the dry cleaners. I have so many questions about what went down, you included. Your very special misbehaving guest star said she had a UTI and therefore wasn't up for penetrative sex. But a woman with a UTI usually isn't up for any sort of sex, not oral sex, not penetrative sex, not masturbation, not anything. It's painful. And a woman with UTI isn't going to want some scrapey-faced dude down between her legs pulling her urethra this way and that as he stimulates her labia and her clit with his tongue and face. No, that's not going to be pleasant. So I don't believe that she had a UTI or maybe she was on the tail end of a UTI or maybe she just had a UTI and it cleared up and she's worried about getting UTI again. I don't think she would have been in your bed and able to pee your bed if she'd actually had a UTI at the time of the very special guest star's arrival. So maybe she wasn't up for penetrative sex and just threw that out there to avoid penetrative sex for some reason, or maybe she was in the tail end of a UTI and just was concerned about it roaring back and wanted to leave penetrative sex off the menu. Moving on. I don't think she peed when you were going down on her. You would have noticed the urine pouring out of her urethra, which is that little hole above the vaginal opening. In all of her vulva business down there, you would have noticed particularly that much. But any, if your face is down there and she starts to pee, the first thing that was going to get wet was you. So I suspect that she, at some point during the session when you two were otherwise engaged, maybe there was a moment when you two were focused on each other and she was just taking you in, she let rip. She peed the bed. Well, you two were distracted. Wasn't when you were going down on her. And this doesn't sound like an orgasm. Doesn't sound like she's a squirter. It just sounds like she's a selfish asshole, Kingster motherfucker who wanted to pee your bed and did. So what do you do? You call her up and say, that wasn't cool. If you ever want to talk to her again, you don't have to talk to her again. You don't have to call her. You don't have to say anything to her again. Don't invite her over again. Unless she's scaldingly attractive and you two are willing to lay a tarp down. But if you want to create a little accountability moment, you can send her a message. You can even send her the bill for the dry cleaning of your comforter. Not that she's going to come through with any money. Someone who will pee your bed without your consent isn't going to send you a check when the bill arrives for having your comforter dry cleaned. So sorry this happened to you.
0: Hi, Dan. I'm a 23-year-old queer woman calling from upstate New York. So two and a half years ago, I ended a relationship, an on-and-off-again relationship, with a man who treated me terribly, and several of the acts that were committed verged the line between coercion and assault. Since that time, I've only dated women and hooked up with women, and it's been wonderful, and I feel like I've really found myself in those relationships. But time and again, I feel myself attracted to men, but I feel unable to approach them to ask them out. For two reasons, first, because I feel like it would diminish my status within my the queer community I've found, and also because I feel concerned that this these men men would take advantage of me in the way I was taken advantage of in the past. I'm wondering what you would do in this situation, and I know that approaching the topic of men women fearing men is a harmful stereotype that has been perpetuated. About lesbianism for years, so I feel uncomfortable bringing this up in queer spaces. Thanks, wondering
2: your thoughts so the stereotype you you mentioned there is that some women become lesbians not because they're particularly attracted to other women but because they fear men or hate men, and so they settle for lesbianism. They settle for women, and that is indeed a stereotype. What isn't a stereotype and what is actually a fact is that there are a lot of women out there who are lesbians who've had shitty, awful experiences with men. There are a lot of women out there who are bi like you are who've had shitty, awful experiences with men. And there are a lot of women who are straight out there who've had shitty, awful experiences with men because not all men, hashtag not all men, are awful. But a number of men, a great deal of men are testosterone-soaked dick monsters, And are violent and are sexually coercive or sexually abusive uh, to their female partners, not to strangers. 53% of women who are murdered are murdered by boyfriends or husbands. Most women who are sexually assaulted aren't sexually assaulted or raped by strangers. They're sexually assaulted or raped by intimate partners or, as with the caller earlier, people they know. Friends of their brothers, friends of the family or family members. So hard to pull those two things apart. Yeah, there are a lot of women out there who are lesbians who've had terrible experiences with men. Because women are socialized to defer to men and because women's sexuality is so much more controlled and suppressed than male sexuality, a lot of queer women don't perceive themselves to be queer, don't arrive at that self-perception and self-actualization until a little later in life. A lot of gay boys coming out at 15, a lot of lesbians coming out at 25 is another cliche and stereotype. Not always true, but... Often true, broadly true. You meet a lot more late in life coming out now as lesbian adult women than you meet late in life now coming out as gay men, gay men, which is not to say they don't exist, but you meet a lot more lesbians who came out later in life than you meet gay men who came out later in life. Although I got a question today from a guy in his 60s who just came out and his whole family's freaking out. So it does happen, but those are data points, not trends. So that was your second concern, like this stereotype. And you don't have to worry about the stereotype and your actions aren't going to prove or disprove the stereotype. And anyone who hears your story and then slots it into lesbians are lesbians because they hate and fear men is just a jerk with a bad case of confirmation bias looking for data points that support his or her prejudice and bias about why queer people are queer people, particularly why lesbians are lesbians, or lesbian-identified by women are lesbian-identified by women, which would seem to be the case with you. You've entered the queer community. You are dating women exclusively over the last two and a half years. You don't say that you're lesbian-identified. Perhaps you just allowed people to identify you by default as a lesbian based on the last two and a half years of your dating and mating history. And now you're worried about complicating that, diminishing your status in the queer community by... Touching a deck. And I think you need to set that aside. You're bi. You're into men and women. Last couple of years, you were only up for women for reasons, for your own reasons, for perfectly good and legitimate reasons. And now you're interested in approaching the occasional dude. And you just have to own that and own it unashamedly. And if more bi people do that in queer spaces, this attitude that somebody who's bi is somehow less queer or less pure of a queer, or less valuable a queer, will fall by the wayside in time. But it's going to take by people being loudly out and loudly themselves and unashamedly, unapologetically themselves in queer spaces to get us there. How's that cliche go? Be the change you want to see in the world? You have that power here in your upstate New York community. As for your concern that you might be taken advantage of or abused by some new dude in the way you were abused by that dude two and a half years ago, that is a perfectly legitimate concern and that is always a risk in interpersonal relationships that you may wind up with someone who's charismatic and loving and kind at first, but is an abuser with an agenda to wear you down, to turn you into that proverbial frog in the pot of boiling water and keep you there long enough to isolate you and abuse you. So. What you need to do going into any new relationships for your own sense of safety and security is to vet guys, is to date them for a while. None of this is foolproof. People have dated and vetted and wound up with abusers. So you date and you vet and you look out for the red flags. Does he try to separate you from your friends? Does he insist on knowing where you are at all times? Is he jealous and insecure in a way that edits your freedoms? Where you begin curtailing where you go and what you're doing, who you're with to avoid upsetting him or angering him. And you tell any guy that you're going to get involved with that you have this history of abuse and you won't put up with it. And you're out if he does anything that makes you feel uncomfortable or unsafe. It's over and it's not a negotiation. You're done and you're out. And you rely on your support network. You confide in your friends about what your relationship is like, how you're being treated, how you process and revolve conflict in your relationship. And there'll always be conflict in relationships. And if your friends start raising red flags themselves, if your friends start giving you the side eye and saying, girl, you got to listen to them. One last thing to look out for when you're dating someone and you're worried about being with an asshole is how they talk about their exes. Women, ladies, ladies, Anybody, really, but particularly women. If everyone he's ever dated, every ex he's ever had is a bitch and a whore that he can't stand and he's still furiously angry with, you're the next bitch whore. And he's going to be furiously angry with you while you're in relationship with him. That, I think, is one of the underheralded signs of the abuser. Hates all their exes. Watch out for that one, too.
7: Hi, Dan. I'm calling mostly trying to find some community around uh, an identity question. I've been sort of circling around for a number of years now. I have been questioning my gender identity for a long time. I'm 26. I've been, I guess, aware of this sort of question in my life since I was about four or five. So basically my whole life. And I've figured out that I, well, I am assigned female at birth. I present Mostly feminine. I identify as lesbian. I present anywhere between androgynous to high femme. I enjoy that fluidity. I use she, her pronouns. And so to the world's eyes, people almost always see me as a cisgender woman, um, which is accurate, but doesn't seem to capture the whole picture for me. I guess I have some body dysphoria and that if I could create my own body, I would be have like a woman's physique, the breasts, and everything, except that I would have male genitalia. So I would have breasts, but also penis. Um, And I have just never heard of another person with this particular fantasy. I've been trying to find some trans or genderqueer community. I live in Chicago, so fortunately that's not too hard. Um, But I sometimes just feel lonely and like I don't belong even in those spaces because I just never find somebody quite like me who kind of wants to be both male and female at the same time. And like, I have no, I love presenting feminine socially. I love being perceived as a woman. I love thinking of myself as a woman, but I just, I want a dick. So <laughs> That's not just a strap-on, a real dick. I'm just calling to see if any other listeners can relate to this. Yeah. So other listeners, if you feel at all similarly to, the, similarly to the way I do. I would really love to hear from you.
2: I've been receiving letters at Savage Love, the column, 27 years, way, way back pre-internet, and the entire time, every once in a while in the mailbag, there is a letter from a woman, every once in a while, who wishes that she had a penis, who would very much like to have quote-unquote male genitalia. Maybe not all the time, but once in a while, and occasionally get letters from men who are happy with their sex that they were assigned at birth, but would like to have a vagina. Vaginas are powerful. They chew up spunk and spit out humans. Who wouldn't want one of those? So I don't think that you're alone in the world. The best you can do right now, short of a phalloplasty, is that strap-on and living with the tension and living with the contradiction. There's probably no resolution here for you. You're an interesting, complicated person with a complicated... Gender identity, you fall on that gender spectrum in a not entirely unique place. There are others like you out there, and I'm sure we will get calls from them. But don't look at where you are or what you've got or what you want as, some, as a problem in need of a solution. It is who you are. And you can enjoy who you are and you can explore having a penis through fantasy and role play and strap on arenas and be who you are and be content. Don't torture yourself enjoy it. Enjoy yourself. Enjoy your gender identity and enjoy its contradictions. And in a way, enjoy its frustrations. You are an unresolvable mystery and you should present as such. We're going to take a quick break from your calls to speak with Erica Moen, the cartoonist behind Ojoys oh Sex Toy, a weekly comic about sex toys and sex education that you can find at ojoysextoy.com, And every once in a while, we invite Erica onto the Lovecast to recommend a sex toy to us. So, hey there, Erica. How are you?
4: Doing really well. How are you?
2: Great. So, so what do you got for us? What's the sex toy du jour?
4: Okay. So, I'm recommending a sex toy that I have not personally used, but my husband has. And so if you've got a penis, whatever your gender may be, this is a toy recommendation for your cock. It is called The Flip Zero, and it's by Tanga, and it's a masturbation, I'm not sure if they call it a sleeve or not, but it, it, it's it's a big hunk of material with a case on it that you stick your dick in, and apparently it feels real good.
2: <laughs> uh, and does Matt, your your partner, Matt, you guys do Ojoy sex toy together, does he recommend it? Did he enjoy it?
4: Oh yeah, he loves it. It's his current favorite.
2: <laughs> oh i hope that doesn't make you feel bad
4: oh no not at all it's like you know i'm it's, we're not always in sync like you know sometimes he's horny but i'm not or i'm horny but he's not and or i'm at work and we we work in two separate locations and it's mm. like yeah he just has a, a an afternoon wank and um yeah this is this is the current go-to
2: so are there what are the bells and whistles or is it just uh it's a it's like it sounds like you're describing kind of a high-end fleshlight
4: yeah, actually. Okay, so what it is, it's this, uh, it, it's this case that actually flips open so you can see the material inside. And it's not silicone. It's something called TPE. I'm not actually sure what the difference is, but don't tell anybody I said that. And um, inside, like, it's got these really cool shapes, and it looks like a labyrinth for your penis to push inside of. Mm. And then you, mm. you stick your dick in it, and then you close it down on it. And you, it it kind of makes a little seal. And then there's this uh, pressure pad on the outside of the case and you can push on it and you can get the suction to be exactly what you want. So you you customize how much force is going to be pulling on your cock. And, um, and then, then you just go to town on it. I, I said to Matt, okay, so what, what should I tell Dan Savage? And he said, (laughs) quote, feels good. And quote, quote, I like this one. So <laughs> there you go.
2: And Matt's British, so everyone should know from a Brit that's kind of a rave review because Brits can be pretty I, reserved.
4: <laughs> yeah, that's that is a, a rave review from my British boy. Um, <laughs> it is ninety nine bucks, and oh, it's really good. It's a good fit for the average size cock. The thing with Fleshlight is they their things are freaking huge, and if you have like a monster cock, I'm sure that's great. But if you're an average person, your dick kind of like gets lost in them a little bit like there's just so much extra space that you can't even fill and it's like i don't know it's just it's, it's a lot yeah this, i dated, so I dated that guy is... <laughs> <laughs> so i
2: okay, know well, i know the pain of which you speak
4: <laughs> well but if you are an average person which is most people uh this is just the right size for the average size cock
2: and they're 99 bucks and where can you get them
4: you can get it from Kanga uh tanga dash global.com or you can also get it from any sex store honestly
2: and the name of the toy again
4: the name of the toy is the flip zero
2: it's the tanga flip zero
4: yes although here's i think the website says it's flip zero but also like i've seen it called the flip hole zero two so i don't i don't know if there's like some name flip-flopping depending on where you're looking for it but um I don't know. Look up Tanga, look up Slip, look up Zero at Culmination Awards should bring it up.
2: Erica Moen, cartoonist behind Ojoy's oh Sex Toy with her reserved Brit husband, Matt. It's a weekly comic about sex toys and sex education. Check it out at ojoysextoy.com. Erica, thanks for jumping on the phone. Oh, my pleasure.
8: Hi, Dan. Long-time listener. I really need your advice. I currently live in a country with few resources, and when this happened, I knew you could provide me some clarity. I'm straight, late-30s female, have explored many different sexual arrangements, open, three-way, sex clubs, tantra. After my exploration, I realized I want a monogamous relationship with one man, and we can be adventurous as long as it's all about us. I mention all this because I'm in a painful situation and very confused. I met the love of my life three years ago. A guy who says he's straight, uh, we've had lots of ups and downs and are building a life together and now trying for kids. Last year, we are at the height of our communication problems while I was away visiting family for a few weeks, and we both cheated. He found out I cheated. I owned up to it. He then told me he had cheated on me with two women by a sexting, one lasting one year long. He cheated on me physically with one woman with unprotected sex, and he interacted sexually with a woman by a touching during a tantra massage. After all this info, we stayed together. We made clear rules. We forgave and tried to move on. I was able to put it behind me slowly because I knew I had cheated. All the fighting had made me feel unwanted. And I know I want a monogamous relationship, marriage and kids. He said the same and I believed it. I wanted couples therapy. He didn't. So I went for one year to work on myself and our communication problems. For a year after this, he wasn't able to move on easily. He was angry, hurt. He even still asks questions about my cheating. He asked us to stop sex altogether because it's too painful. He asked me to throw out all my lingerie. He didn't want to face the pain. He wanted to hide from it. Two months ago, he started watching male porn and told me about it. He said it was that he wanted to reconnect with his sexuality via men, which didn't give him painful images. I was traveling for work last week, and when I came home, he told me he'd paid a male sex worker for mutual masturbation, no condoms. Now he's finally in therapy for the communication problems as well as this um, break of trust. But I know his process will be lengthy. He's also yet to admit that he's bi and insists that he was only curious about touching or being touched by a man because he had turned to male porn because of the pain he felt by looking at females that reminded him of my cheating. Up until now, the only interaction we've had with men is a a three-way where a man was touching me while we had sex, and he wanted that. That wasn't my idea. And one of his fantasies is to watch me have sex with other men. Can you help me understand the situation a bit more? Because as I said, I'm looking for a husband, the father of my kids, and we are trying for babies. I'm almost 40, so time isn't on my side. And I've spent a year working to forgive him for his cheating and trust. So very confused. Thanks so much, Dan, for any help you can give me.
2: So to quickly recap, you've been dating this guy for three years. The beginning of the relationship was high conflict. You mentioned there was a lot of fighting and a lot of drama, Also, the first time you were away from each other, you both cheated. He cheated with two or three women. You cheated with one man. And he's unable to get past or forgive despite the fact that you can forgive. And he's obsessing. He asked you to stop having sex because he just can't handle having sex with you. Because he just can't handle having sex with you because you cheated on him. But somehow it's not as much of an issue that he cheated on you. Three times as much as you cheated on him. And now he's watching gay porn and fucking men because of what you did. He doesn't want to be with other women because it's so traumatic that you slept with another man that now he has to sleep with other men because when he sleeps with a woman, he thinks of you having sex with another man. It makes no fucking sense. Stop trying to make a baby with this mess. This is a terrible relationship. I'm sorry. This is, this sounds like a fucking nightmare, this relationship. And he sounds like. I, I, I'm trying to select a term that isn't ableist around mental health issues. He sounds messy. He sounds fucking unhinged. He sounds unhinged. This is a door off its fucking hinges, this man. And right now, he's putting you through all this and you aren't trapped. He's doing all of this, pulling all of this shit on you when you are free to walk the fuck away. What kind of shit is he going to pull once you scrambled your DNA together? And you are tied to him for life because you made a baby with this lunatic. It'll get worse. You will regret scrambling your DNA together with this man. My advice to you is get on a plane and go back home and don't come back to wherever it is that he is. My advice to you if you want to be a parent is to go to a sperm bank. Get yourself a couple of frozen loads and if you want to be a parent because you're getting close to 40 and it's now or never, do that on your own and then get out there in the world and meet other saner guys who would value being with someone as sexually adventurous and open and communicative as you are and co-parent that child together or blend your families together if you can meet another guy who's a single parent himself. You don't have to settle for this guy, and I, I'm warning you now, a guy who pulls this kind of shit on a woman before they scramble their DNA together is planning to consciously or subconsciously pull worse shit on that woman once she's stuck with him for life. Even if you get away from him, you are tied to him for life and he will continue to pull worse and worse shit on you. This dude is Toxic. Do not make a baby with him.
9: Hi, Dan. Um, I'm actually calling to ask your advice for my uh, one of my best friends. I'm sure you've probably discussed this topic before, but uh, like I said, I'm a newer listener. Recently, my friend confided in me that she was diagnosed with an STD about a month or two ago. Um, she said it was herpes, the genital type. I'm not quite sure. I know there's different types. Since since this, she struggled with what to do about sex and dating. She did immediately join an online support group, which I thought was good. Um, She's been abstinent abstinent since her diagnosis. Um, However, last night she told me she finally hooked up with someone, and it's actually our mutual friend. Uh, She told me she didn't tell him, but that they used a condom and she's on medication, so the risk of transmission is really low. But she's still conflicted and asked me if she should tell him. I do think she should, but I also don't have a lot of experience with this subject. How do you suggest she approaches this topic with future sexual partners? And should she tell this guy now after the fact?
2: I'm of two minds. Herpes, HPV, exposure infection rates really high. And people who have multiple sex partners, people who have a lot of casual sex partners, are in a way volunteering to be exposed to these ubiquitous Easily transmitted and for most people, not that big a deal, sexually transmitted infections. Herpes. Most people have a single outbreak. A lot of people who have herpes don't know they have it because the single outbreak they did have didn't pain them to a great degree. They had a bump and they were like, what is that? And it went away and they forgot about it and they've never had another outbreak. And yet there's this huge stigma. And yet there's this huge stigma and people who know they have herpes are told that they must disclose and people to whom they disclose that they have herpes often react very negatively. And a lot of the people who are out there reacting very negatively to this disclosure themselves have herpes. They just don't know they have it. And so it seems like this burden is placed on the shoulders of people who know they have herpes to always disclose in the face of so much ignorance and prejudice and bias and misplaced fear and that can really screw up their sex lives so there are people out there who have herpes who say that they don't disclose and they don't feel guilty about it and they shouldn't have to run around disclosing this thing that if they're particularly if they're taking suppression medications and they're using condoms The people that they're having sex with are at very low risk, not no risk, skin-to-skin transmission of herpes HPV possibility, but at very low risk of of passing on to another person. All that said, I tend to come down on the side of disclosure just to avoid bullshit and drama and also to confront people about their prejudice and bias and fear. You tell someone that you have herpes, disclose, they freak out, discard, disclose and discard, disclose and discard until you find someone who isn't going to freak out. Because they're aware that the risk of transmission is low. And they're aware that even if there is transmission, that the likely impact is negligible. So your friend has to wring her hands now and wonder what to say and whether to say anything because she didn't disclose. She has created this anxiety and worry for herself to avoid the anxiety and worry of the disclosure moment. Like, what will happen if I tell him and he doesn't want to have sex with me? Ah, I'll be rejected. That'll feel terrible. Now, after the fact, she has to worry about this. She also has to worry that he'll find out Some other way because she has mutual friends. They have mutual friends who know that she has herpes. So to avoid the anxiety of the disclosure prior to the intercourse, your friend has burdened herself with the anxiety and and worry post-sex about when and if it's going to be disclosed or he's going to find out. Speaking for myself, I would rather face the anxiety of the disclosure prior to sex than the worry of discovery after the sex. Your friend gets to make up her own mind, though.
10: Hi, Dan, and the at-risk, tech-savvy youth. I am a cisgendered lesbian from the West Coast, and I have a question about what you do uh, or any advice you would have about your partner's family that just does not accept you and refuses to acknowledge your presence. I've been with my partner now for year, and she's actually moving up to the city that I live in. Uh, We've been doing long distance that entire year. I'm not her first lesbian relationship. She was previously married for three years when I met her, and her and her wife at the time were living in the same city as her family, and they still, you know, at no point acknowledge their relationship I come from a very warm and open and welcoming family, and I don't understand the concept of loving, you know, a a daughter, a sister with strings attached and on, on their standards as opposed to just loving them for who they are. And this is a great point of contention and issues and problems in our relationship. You know, I try not to take it out on her because it's not her fault that... You know, her mother in particular at this point basically just knows my name and knows that she's moving across the country to come be with me. You know, every time we talk about it, it's a really sensitive subject and it makes me feel like shit because, I, you know, this woman doesn't think I'm worthy of her daughter. And I, I I would love to just tell her that her her daughter is in good hands and I care about this person greatly and deeply and adore her and... It it eats me up inside. She now is always welcome at my house and my family's houses for holidays, and they always ask about her. They talk to her, friends on social media and all that. And I'm not asking exactly for that from her family, but I would like them to at least know that I exist other than just my name. So I would really like some advice, if you can, about how to cope with, your partner's family not accepting you if there's anything I can do to maybe facilitate that relationship you know I hope it's something where she'd come around eventually her mother in particular but like I said like she was a, a previous marriage and they still didn't even acknowledge that
2: at the top of your call when you said that your girlfriend's family refuses to acknowledge your presence I wondered what the fuck you were doing in their presence in the first place by the end of the call, it was clear that you've never even met your girlfriend's family. I think that's positive. I think you should be grateful that your girlfriend hasn't inflicted her family on you. My question for your girlfriend would be why she's still inflicting her family, her birth family, her biological family on herself. Sounds like they spend time together. Sounds like she goes to see her mother on her mother's terms. And as I've said about 8,000 million billion, billion times, your only leverage over your parents as an adult child is your presence. And if your parents can't treat you with respect and they can't treat your partner or partners with respect, don't make yourself present and tell them that that's why you're not seeing them. That decent treatment, loving treatment is the condition that you are laying down for them to have access to you, for them to see you. And if your biological family doesn't come around, you will strike out there into the world and find your logical family. That's not my quote. That gets attributed to me a lot on the internet, that there's your biological family and then there's your logical family. I'm quoting Armistead Maupin. That is a line from Tales of the City that I love. All credit goes to Armistead. Your girlfriend may have found her logical family in you and with your family of origin who love and accept you. She's going to have to stand up to her parents, and she's going to have to tell her parents to get the fuck out of her life if they can't love and accept her. Now, you need to not act like her mother not loving and accepting you is something that your girlfriend is doing wrong to you, and that she has to go in there, guns blazing, and force her parents to acknowledge you and accept and embrace you. They haven't even acknowledged and accepted and embraced their own daughter yet. You're the next step, and they're never going to acknowledge Love, accept, embrace their daughter so long as she is willing to see them on their conditions. The condition that she not bring the girlfriend or the wife around. And the condition that she not mention the fact that she's queer. That she edit herself around them. Including editing you out in the same way she probably had to edit her ex-wife out for their comfort. Catering to her parents' comfort makes your girlfriend, I do not doubt it, Uncomfortable. Seeing her do that, which in a way negates you, negates your relationship with her, makes you uncomfortable and it creates conflict in your relationship. That you can talk to the girlfriend about. Or you can tell your girlfriend to listen to me. Only leverage over your parents as an adult is your presence. Your girlfriend needs to make herself not present and you need to be grateful. Like I said, when I began to listen to your call and you said they refused to acknowledge your presence, I thought you were in the room with them. And they were icing you out and pretending you weren't there. Not the case. They just don't ever want to meet you. Sounds like a blessing in disguise, not having to meet a bunch of bigots. But your girlfriend needs to use the leverage she has over her parents to get them off their bigotry and back into her life on her terms. And when they're in her life on your girlfriend's terms, then you will be acknowledged in their presence, their actual physical presence.
3: Hi Dan. I'm a 32-year-old male out of Richmond, Virginia, and I think that I'm uh well I, I don't think I guess I know now by now that I'm bisexual and uh, I'm married with three kids um and I love my wife. I'm very very much uh, into women, um but I also am into men. So, and I just don't know how to break the news to my wife. You know, she's she's my best friend. I love her with all of my heart, and I want her to know everything about me, and so I don't know how to go about doing that. She's very open-minded. You know, she sort of got me hip to the notion that, not the notion, the the ideal that, you know, we we all have our rights and our preferences. Before I met her, I was a little bit, um, not closed-minded, but just didn't know any better so there's no fear that she's gonna you know find me disgusting or repulsive or anything that like that i just don't know how to break the news to her
2: so before i get to, to, to your question i have a couple for you how did you come to this realization that you're by
3: um i don't know i guess like i've always known I've- sort of just, like, pushed it out of my mind any time those, like, thoughts or feelings sort of came up, you know?
2: When you pushed them out of your mind, how did you explain those thoughts or feelings to yourself? When you're... To
3: myself? I yeah. don't know. I just, I, I guess I really didn't. I, you know, I didn't understand why I was getting angry at attractive men,
2: you huh. know,
3: why I wanted to punch them in the face instead of, like, actually uh, accepting that, like, you know, there was, you know, attraction there.
2: That that actually speaks to a lot of what motivates violent homophobia. You would see an attractive man. It would elicit feelings in you. That, that man would elicit feelings in you that made you confused or upset, feelings you didn't want to have, and you would be angry at that guy because you were attracted to him as if that was something he was doing to you.
3: Right. And I mean, you know, I've never been a violent person, but like, you know, yeah, for sure that's what was going on early in in my, you know, young adulthood.
2: I mean, I'm not, yeah, Um, I wasn't saying that you had been violent. I'm just saying, you know, there's studies out there that show that the more homophobic a person is or that a homophobic person often experiences homoerotic desire. And the homophobia is a reaction to it, sometimes a cover for that homoerotic desire. And homophobia can be expressed violently. I wasn't suggesting that you had been violently homophobic. Right, right. And a- another question before we get to the issue, have you ever acted on it?
3: I haven't. Um, not once. I've never I've never kissed a guy. I've never, you know, fumbled a guy. I've never acted on it at all, mm-hmm. ever.
2: All right. So let's talk about the wife. You ask how you can tell her. And, of course, you just have to open your mouth and say it. And that's scary. Yeah, and
3: so I did that, actually. Oh, my
2: gosh. So how did it go?
3: Yeah. Uh, well, she was confused and... Uh, bewildered to say the least. Um, she just, you know, it shocked her. Mm-hmm. Um, but she took, she didn't take it. She took it how I sort of expected her to take it. Um, but which was, you know, bewilderment and confusion. Um, but she, you know, she wasn't upset or anything. She was just like, sort of, she had some questions, um, like, you know, what, what happens when I do want to act on it? What does that mean for our commitment mm-hmm. and things like that? Um, which I don't even, you know, I don't know the answer to that. But yeah, I mean, I, I guess it went well. She's still there's, I can tell that there's still some questions that she has that she's not wanting to ask me just yet. Mm-hmm. So still, I guess I'm just I'm playing the waiting game, I suppose, and just waiting for her to come to terms with everything. So what is it that feel you want? Comfortable are? enough.
2: I don't really know what I want. You want her to know you. That's what you said. Yeah, exactly. Call. I want you my want best to, friends, and yeah, you don't have to hide this from her. Now that you've told right. her, you know, she may justifiably, you'd be wondering whether this means that you would like to act on it at some point. And if you guys have a monogamous commitment, what does that mean? Now, there are lots of people out there who are bi, who are in relationships that are monogamous, and they are quite capable, as capable as anyone else, of honoring a monogamous commitment. I think monogamy is hard. A lot of people endeavor to honor monogamous commitments and fail at it, gay, straight, and bi all the time. But she may be wondering you know, if this is an important part of your sexuality, sexual identity, sexual expression are you going to want to act on it in some point does this mean renegotiating the monogamous commitment that you two have made to each other is that ultimately what you want
3: um you know i don't i don't really know to be honest with you i it's so so early that on in in me actually accepting this myself i don't know what that's going to look like in two years five years you know ten years um I don't necessarily want to bring another person into our bedroom. Um, I don't feel comfortable with her being with another person and I don't like, I just, we've been together for five years, which isn't a terribly long time, but it's long enough for me to, for me to feel totally and fully comfortable with her mm-hmm. and her alone. So, I mean, I you know, I don't, I don't really know, to be honest with you. And, and I think that's what scares her the most.
2: Has she expressed any anger?
3: None, none at all.
2: Okay. Well, that's she, good. Uh,
3: I, and I joke, I joke with her, you know, I was like, it's, it's sort of your your you know claim to fame too because I mean I was at a time homophobic and now I'm you know self proclaimed bisexual and she had a big part in doing that and and her opening my eyes to the idea that you know everyone deserves to be what they want to be
2: mm-hmm. or be what they are and be open right it without stigma exactly. shame so it doesn't sound like right now anything needs to happen. Except you two need to sit with this and keep talking to each other about what it means. And, and you say, you know, you don't know where what you'll want in two years, five years, ten years, or where you'll be when we were talking about monogamy. And I think that's something that should be on the table. The terms of of a relationship sometimes need to be revisited and renegotiated. And monogamy can work for a couple for many years, for decades, and then a couple can negotiate a non monogamous commitment or, or an allowance for a little outside sexual contact, almost all non-monogamous couples outside of San Francisco, Portland, and Seattle, almost all non-monogamous couples were at the outset initially, sometimes for years, sometimes for decades, monogamous couples. So most of the non-monogamous couples out there in the world that you'll meet or hear from or hear about were monogamous for a time and then renegotiated that. You too can as well. The the What might be scary for your wife to talk about that right away or talk about it at all is she may worry that this is negotiating your way out of the relationship, unwinding your commitment to her. And so I would encourage you if you do want to have a negotiation in two years or five years to really wait two years or five years to have that negotiation so that she understands that being with you and you being by doesn't mean you're eyeing the door or that you want out because you want a relationship with a man or you want Dick so badly that you're willing to throw your marriage away and your family away to go get it, that you can be with her and just be with her and be out to her and be bisexual without having to act on it necessarily. And the only way to prove that is true to her is to live that for a while.
3: Yeah. You got a hell of a point there, Mr. Savage. Um, I'm, I'm completely content. I'm completely content at the time being jacking off to gay porn and being <laughs> just fine with that. You know, I'm, a, I'm still making love to her. I am wildly attracted to my wife, it, it hasn't like, you know, I'm, I'm still very attracted to women. It's just, I'm also attracted to clean cut guys.
2: Mm-hmm. Nothing wrong with that. Right. Nothing wrong with it. Uh, absolutely. I am a hundred thousand percent on your side. Even scruffy guys, uh, and sometimes skeezy looking guys have their appeal. So you really actually don't need my advice or or any pointers at this time. You need to keep demonstrating to your wife that you're not going anywhere, that this truth you've told about yourself isn't eating away at the foundations of your relationship, your marriage, or your commitment to her or your family. And that if the time comes when maybe a three-way with another dude presents itself as a possibility, maybe that's something that she would enjoy. Maybe the conversation about your bisexuality and your needs – opens up a conversation about her sexuality and her needs where there may be accommodations and allowances that could be made on both sides. You say you would never want her to be with someone else. Well, she probably feels the same way about you. And maybe that means you guys gonna be monogamous for the rest of your lives and the rest of this marriage. And you will only ever explore your bisexual desires through fantasy and masturbation and pornography. And is that okay? And can you live with that? Or is it something you feel you must act on at some point? And then that's a different conversation. And if she's going to let go and give you an allowance and give you some freedom, I'm sorry, that requires you to repay it in kind usually. So that if she has a fantasy or an experience that she wants to have that doesn't involve you, a need that you can't meet for her, it may seem scary. You're only five years into this relationship and you have young children. Terrifying right now to even contemplate outside sexual contact for a lot of people in your situation, because there's just too much at stake, too much at risk. Young parents of young children, that's a relay race and introducing any sort of free radical elements or distractions can make one or both partners feel very insecure.
3: So I mean, should I have, should I have waited and to, to come out? to her? no, no, no,
2: no, no. I think, I think coming out to her now is the right thing to do, but I think that you tell her there's n- no, need to act on this for years. I'm not looking at a week from next Thursday, hoping I can go suck a dick. Nothing needs to happen except I wanted you to know me. Right. And we can keep having a, and we can keep having a conversation, you know, monogamy and a monogamous commitment should be opt in at the start. It shouldn't be a default setting. The problem with monogamy as a default setting is that you wind up with a lot of people who can't do monogamy, making monogamous commitments they cannot keep. But yeah. it should be a, an ongoing opt-in conversation. That it's something you should be able to revisit as a couple. And maybe when your kids are young, it's too potentially destabilizing and, and scary for your wife to even think about. When your kids are teenagers, when your kids are out of the house, when your kids are off at college, that's when a lot of heterosexual couples join this organized swinging. Not when their kids are two, when their kids are 20. Right. Because it feels less potentially disastrous if things go south or there's a conflict or a huge distraction because of the outside sexual contact. And I think that's a legitimate choice to say, you know what we're going to knuckle under for right now? Just us. We don't want to introduce any drama or chaos or risk somebody catching feelings for someone when we both need to be completely focused on our family and each other at this time. But that doesn't mean that we can't when – Family pressures are less intense. Have a conversation then about what's possible, not just for me, but also for you. Because what you want now may change over time. Who you are, caller, who you are, you've always been. And it's not, nothing's changed. You're just cognizant of it in a way where you can articulate it. You can say it out loud now. So nothing's changed. Change when or if it comes is a conversation you're going to have with each other and an agreement you're going to come to together and it'll be mutual.
3: And it doesn't have to happen now.
2: And it doesn't have to happen now. Although I hope it happens for you eventually. And I hope your wife is there and it's a joyful sexual adventure for both of you. Good luck.
11: Well, thank you. Thank you, sir.
2: Sure thing. Bye.
11: Hi, Dan. Straight cisgendered male here. And I just recently started Dating a queer girl. She's definitely into ladies and also men, but does she, by her own definition, doesn't know exactly where she stands on the you know Kinsey scale queer world. She's dated men in the past and women, uh, but mostly women. I asked her if she was cool making it you know something of a romantic date with me, and she said she was fine with that. I guess I'm calling uh, advice on do's and don'ts. Uh, me being a, a male, I think I'm at a disadvantage. I'm pretty sure she's mostly into ladies and poly stuff, which I don't have any, any experience with, but I'm open to the idea of it. I mean, it's pretty early in our uh, dating, but I really like her and I would like it to progress, uh, but I'm very lost as to uh, you know the do's and don'ts and what to do next.
2: We've already done one significant thing right. When you wanted to go out on a date, you made it clear, you used your words, and you said, I would like to see you again, and I'd like this to be a romantic thing. I'd like to have a romantic date with you. Is that something that you would welcome? Are you interested in me in that same way? And she said yes, instead of asking her out as a friend and then kind of seeing if you can't make that into a date without ever having to use your words or make it clear that you were interested in her that way, you used your words and you made it clear. Good for you. That's a good do. Everyone should practice that do. As for a long list of other do's and don'ts when it comes to dating queer or poly people, I can't provide you with that. You could do a little reading if you want to learn more about polyamory. I would recommend Many Love, a memoir of polyamory and finding loves. We recently had... The author, Sophia Lucido-Johnson, here on the show. I would also recommend More Than Two, A Practical Guide to Ethical Polyamory and Opening Up, A Guide to Creating Sustaining Open Relationships by Tristan Taramino. Terrific book if you want to learn more about polyamory broadly and generally. But the do's and don'ts for being in a relationship with this woman, she has to provide you with those and you have to provide her with your own do's and don'ts. She's dated men. She's dated women. She's dated more women than men. Could be that she's bisexual and homo romantic, that she prefers women. Or she could just have had a string of luck with women and is a 50-50, could be a man, could be a woman, bisexual. But she has the answer to that question. She knows who she is or she's figuring it out. And that's a conversation that you can have with her. I think a lot of the anxiety you're experiencing right now and the worry about getting this right – is that you want to be in a relationship with her and you want that to last. You want to figure out how to do everything right so you can keep her. And at the end of the day, you can't keep someone. You never own someone. And you can free yourself from that anxiety about whether you're going to be together for the next 60 years or 50 years or 40 years by just enjoying being together now and seeing where it goes and telling yourself at every step, at every juncture – That a relationship can last a lifetime and be great, be good, be successful. A relationship can last a couple of months. A relationship can last six months, a year, an evening, a weekend, and still be a success. We need to get into the cultural conversation around dating and mating and relationships, the concept of the successful short-term relationship. We have it in our heads that any relationship that's short-term, any relationship that doesn't last forever, that doesn't end up in a funeral home with one or both partners dead was a failure. So we talk about LTRs constantly, but we don't talk about STRs. We talk about LTRs as if they are, by definition, successes, when there are a lot of shitty LTRs out there that ought to end. High conflict, abusive LTRs. Well, there are a lot of wonderful STRs in the world, too, where people are good and decent and kind and loving to each other, and they're together a shorter amount of time. If you're down for either. If you tell this woman, I am open to an LTR, I'm also open to a really successful STR. Let's just enjoy each other for however long we're together. You up the chances not only of having a successful STR that you both emerge from alive and grateful for having met and known one another and grateful, if you really stick the dismount, for having each other in your lives together forever. You also up the chances that you will wind up in a successful LTR. If you can be chill about either potentially being a success, the STR or the LTR.
12: Hi, Dan, long-time listener. Um, quick question. I have an issue where when I I like dating and I enjoy dating guys, but after I have sex with them, I no longer like them. I once went three years dating a guy, never had sex with him, he never pushed me. We dated for 3 years. It was great. He wanted to get married. I had sex with him and then just no longer liked him anymore and uh didn't agree to be engaged. So is something wrong with me? I just I can't figure out why I just no longer like the guys I date after I sleep with them just one time and then I just no longer want to be with them again. Or is it just some kind of weird instinct hunter instinct i don't
2: know mental health professionals for a very long time defined any sort of kink as basically a mental illness but they've moved away from that thank god and now the posture of the mental health community is that a sexual fetish or a kink is only a problem in someone's life or their romantic relationships if it causes significant personal distress toss that out there because my first impulse after listening to your question was are you upset about this?" Does this make you sad? Is this fucking up your life? And that doesn't come across in your tone of voice. You don't sound particularly distressed. I bet, though, if I got that guy on the phone that you dated for three years who wanted to marry you and had proposed to you and then you wanted nothing to do with and hated right after you fucked him, I bet he's pretty distressed by that experience. Probably pretty traumatized by that experience, by the investment, the emotional investment he made in you. I don't think knowing what you know about yourself that you can allow ethically, you can allow men to make that kind of investment in you or any kind of investment in you. So long as you are suffering from this problem. And I do think it's a problem and I think it's not one that I'm going to be able to unpack or cure or reverse for you on this here podcast. The word sex negativity and sex phobia, these terms that get tossed around a lot and we're so steeped in it. We're so soaking in sex negativity and sex phobia that sometimes we don't even perceive it. Like the fish doesn't know what fucking water is. And I think that, you know, and maybe this is kind of an obvious reading of the, the problem here. I think that when you fuck somebody, first time that you have sex with somebody, you can't stand them anymore. And that is you externalizing your own internal sex phobia or sex shame. Rather than being mad at or disgusted with and wanting to get away from yourself, which is impossible, get away from yourself, you are mad at yourself, disgust with yourself, can't get away from yourself. Instead, you just flip all of that and you're mad or disgusted or must get away from that guy. And you need to unpack that at great length with a fucking shrink to get to the bottom of it and root that out if it is causing you as much distress as you are causing the people that you date. If you can't undo this, you do have options. If what you want is a long-term intimate romantic relationship that has no sex where sex never comes in and spoils it. There are certainly guys out there that you could have that kind of relationship with. There are guys out there who are low to no libido. There are guys out there who are closet cases who want to do dudes on the side and go home to the wife who makes no sexual demands on them at all. You could partner hopefully ethically openly honestly with one of those guys and then every once in a while, bang a dude on the side that you're never going to see again because you can't get over this issue, this problem that you have, if you can't get over this issue, if you can't get over this problem that you have. And I think that you can get over it. I think working with a therapist who can get to the bottom of your sex phobia, your sex negativity, and root it out, then maybe you'll get to a place where you can fuck a guy more than once and still want to see him again.
13: Hey, Dan. I'm a sex with an ex question. I um, was married 20 years and divorced, been divorced for two and a half years and then started having sex with my ex again. It's been very great and awesome. It's just we can't really talk about it with, you know, our kids, obviously, or my parents because my parents have threatened to disown me if I get back with this guy. Uh, We were financially incompatible. And that is why we divorced. And I think just keeping it on the sex level, you know, we have a much more healthy relationship because, you know, he does his thing, I do mine, you know, it works that way for us. And our sex has been rekindled this way, been pretty great. Um, We didn't have a whole lot of sex the last five years of our marriage. So, you know, for whatever reason that was happening. So anyway, just kind of wondering, am I just totally fucked up doing this? Or is this okay? Is this all right for me right now? And is it okay for us to make our own rules at this point? Given that, you know, 20 years of marriage, three kids, and, uh, you know, we had time to think about things for about two years before we hooked up again.
2: Sure, this is okay. You can fuck whoever you want to fuck, including your ex-husband. You can make your own rules. Of course you can. Your parents, however, can make their own rules and your parents are free to disinherit you or cut you out of the will or whatever else they're threatening to do. Should they find out that you're fucking this guy, they don't want you to fuck again. That's controlling shitty behavior on your parents' part. They shouldn't try to micromanage your sex life or keep particular dick out of their daughter. That's not a parent's job in the life of an adult child. When you say there were financial incompatibilities here and your parents are angry and involved to some extent, I began to wonder if your parents didn't have to bail you out in some significant way after he gambled it all away, ran up a bunch of debts, screwed you over somehow, and your parents had to rush to the rescue, in which case they may feel that they have some purchase here, that they have a right to intervene or to speak up or to slap this particular dick out of your twat. Putting that aside, though, yeah, you can do whatever the fuck you want to do. You're a grown-up. One of the consequences of doing this particular thing you want to do may be conflict with your parents. If that's a risk you're willing to run for this particular guy and that particular dick, knock yourselves out. As for your kids, you know, telling your adult children that you're fucking your ex-husband might get back to mom and dad, to their grandparents, particularly if... They don't approve. So you could treat this like a fun secret. You can sneak around like a couple of kids might make the sex that much hotter because you're not supposed to, because it's forbidden, because it's naughty. And then after mom and dad have gone to their reward and you've gotten your chunk of their estate, you can let everybody who doesn't have the power to disinherit you anymore know.
12: Dan,
13: 35-year-old straight woman from Oklahoma. Question for you my coworkers and I are riding to have a couple of drinks and the topic of swingers came up and uh, they believe that if you're a swinger and maybe it's just here in Oklahoma, but if you're a swinger, you put pineapples out in front of your house or maybe white rocks, decorations, pineapple
12: decorations. (laughs) Thank you. Um, Is this true?
2: For hundreds of years, pineapple was a symbol of hospitality. That's why you see it incorporated into a lot of architectural motifs. It also projected wealth because not everybody in England could easily access a fucking pineapple. So if somebody had pineapples, they had enough money to have pineapples. And if somebody had enough money to have pineapples, they had enough money to pay an architect to stick a few pineapples in the decorative motif of their mansion. According to Urban Dictionary, I Googled this for you because you couldn't Google it for yourself, the upside-down pineapple on the porch or mailbox is a sign that Swinger's Put out there to let people know who are coming to their house for a swingers party that a swingers party is underway in that place. That I did not know until you called and prompted me to Google it for you. I know that now. I wouldn't put a lot of stock in it. If I saw a pineapple out of someone's house, I wouldn't knock on the door and invite myself into the swingers party that may or may not be going on. Kind of reminds me of earrings. In the 70s, everyone said, oh, they've got a, the left ear pierced, then they're gay. Or was it the right? No one could remember if it was the right ear or the left ear or both ears. So you never really knew the dude with a pierced ear was gay or not. And you certainly wouldn't want to hit on a dude based on your best guess as to whether that was the gay earlobe or the both earlobes were the gay earlobes or whatever it was. So I think this is a nice urban myth. I don't think it's anything anyone should act on. Should they spot a pineapple outside a ranch house? But yeah, happy to Google that for you.
3: Dan, I'm calling in response to the uh, Irish girl whose ex-boyfriend ghosted her and is now getting pictures posted with his quote-unquote new girlfriend. I think you missed something.
2: I think that the quote-unquote new girlfriend was the girlfriend the entire time. I think our poor Irish girl was the other woman, and he
3: was hiding her from the the, the woman who is now posting pictures of him on her Instagram. But also, I was going to say, what she should do is contact that chick through Instagram. This is petty, I, I admit But she should contact contact that chick and just say, hey, just so you know, I have no idea how long you've been with this guy, but I was with him from this date to this date. Have a nice life.
13: Hi, Dan. I'm calling in response to the woman on episode 615 who was concerned about whether her personal trainer supported gay rights or not. Your response was great, and I wanted to add that you can often find that information from a church's website. Many supportive churches will post rainbow flags or will be in what is called the Reconciling Ministries Network. Many pastors and congregations do actively fight for the rights of LGBTQ people. My church goes to the Pride Parade every year and will be out this weekend protesting the Unite the Right rally. Embracing your Christian allies takes power away from the bigoted evangelicals, so please don't be prejudiced against all Christians.
6: Hello, caller from episode
13: 615, who wants to meet big, strong women. You're from the Midwest. There are farms in the Midwest. There are girls who grew up working cows and horses on farms in the Midwest. They would love to boss you around in a nice, vanilla way, in a kinky way, in whatever way you all could possibly want. But farm girls, we're big, we're strong, we're happy to boss you around.
2: And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Love Cast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. And please note that tickets for the 14th Annual Hump Film Festival go on sale August 15th at 10 a.m. The opening of this year's festival will take place in November in Seattle, Portland, and for the first time ever, San Francisco. Only audiences at the opening festival screenings in those three cities get to vote and decide which films take home the $20,000 in cash prizes, including the $10,000 Best in Show prize awarded by Audience Ballot. Limited discount early bird tickets available. Get them while you can at Hump Film Fest. And there is still time to submit a film to Hump. The deadline to make and submit a film to Hump is September 14th at 3 p.m. For all the information that you'll need to submit a film and for more information about the $20,000 in cash prizes given away at Hump every year, go to humpfilmfest.com slash submit. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Erica Moen on Twitter at Erica Moen. That's Erica with a K and Moen is spelled M-O-E. Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with an installment of Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading